This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hello, thanks for joining us here on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford, and this week, my guest co-host is Willie Hicks, Public Sector CTO at Dynatrace. Hey, Willie, how you doing? Good morning. I, I'm doing very well. Glad to be here with you again. I know. I'm so happy to have you co-hosting today. Um, and I'm super excited that we get to talk to Sean Applegate, CTO of Swish Data. Good morning, Sean. Hey, good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Willie. I'm excited to be here. Should be a blast. Yes, this is honestly, this is the best part of my week. This is the best part of, I mean, what I do. I love talking to really smart people with really uh, great ideas about how technology can better our lives and how the government specifically can do that. So, Sean, I want to jump right into You've written a lot of stuff. You're a pretty prolific writer, um, blogs, articles, and a recent blog that I saw, I'm not going to lie, it kind of broke my head. I mean, it was just like, this is a lot of technical stuff. Um, <laughs> but there were a couple of things in it that were kind of gotchas for me that I'd love for you to drill down into a little bit. And I want to quote you. Um, at the beginning of your blog, you write, the, the name of the blog is Optimizing Mission Outcomes with Intelligent Insights. And in one of the beginning paragraphs, you say, transforming the DOD to a data-centric organization requires that data is visible, accessible, understandable, linked, trustworthy, interoperable, and secure. So I would love for you to dive into that a little bit. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I would say the one thing that DOD is noticing, and you'll see this with some of, of their DevSecOps reference architectures, is it requires culture change, whether that's the business leaders or the mission leaders, the contractors, the developers, the people running infrastructure or delivering a service. They've identified that the data has to be accessible across all of those different parts of the mission and that getting that data collectively together is extremely important and it's valuable for both mission velocity and a competitive advantage um, around the world, whether that's so, DOD or uh, or civilian agencies, we see that as well. So data is critical, be able to find it first. And when you say accessible, like some of these, I'm like, well, duh. I mean, if you've got the data, what do you mean it's not accessible? I, do you mean like across agencies or across groups or... A lot of it is making it accessible, not just within your command, but outside the command. So it's trusted. And so, you know, if I need, if I have, for example, um, I'm using an application performance management, so I'm delivering an application. I have lots of stuff on the on the application itself. I may not have a lot of stuff on the user community, or maybe somebody wants to analyze the success of my mission. And the mission can be measured lots of different ways. How do I merge those data points together so I can draw uh, make make a business decision from that, that's very impactful. And that may be something at a very strategic echelon, such as the Pentagon, Pentagon or maybe very tactical down at the tip of the spear, the, the unit deployed overseas that needs to make a decision right this minute. How do we do that? That's very complex. Got it. So one of the things that gets bounced around a lot these days, you, you guys have both talked about AI ops, using AI ops to get us to this place that you, all of these things that you list. So can you talk about how AI ops enables this, I guess? 
Yeah, absolutely. On AI ops side, what we find is allows our, our human workers to better focus on problem solving and the complex things you can't easily do with a computer. Um, on the AI piece, allows us to typically make linkage. And so if you think of linked data, it's the dependencies between data points or systems. So in many cases, when we look at application performance management, a user might have an issue on the front end and we have to go, what was that issue? The network, is it the desktop? Is it the application web front end? Or is it deep back in the database? Being able to draw that picture out end to end so you can analyze what their dependencies are and understand them and then do the root cause analysis to figure out where the problem is at is absolutely critical so we can solve those problems faster. And that's really what it's about, right? Solving problems quicker or building better performing team systems so that we can achieve our mission and make citizens happy or empower the warfighter at the tip of the spear. So, and so oh, yeah, go ahead. I was, well, I was just going to ask you Willie to jump in because so the whole linkage thing, I'm like, well, that's kind of boring. When I want to talk about AI, I want to talk about the Terminator or data from Star Trek. So, Don't forget Jarvis. And Jarvis, exactly, right? So so Willie, first um, level set us on AI and and I'll try to, you know, keep my fantasies out of the podcast and then respond yeah. to what Sean said. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just uh, kind of a, a level set on AI and I, it's more of a, I, I guess, a question, you know, when often when I have these conversations, Sean, with people, um, you know, there's always a lot of, um, uh, I would say misconceptions about AI, what AI is, you know, a lot of names get thrown around machine learning versus, you know, are we talking about uh, a <laughs> more of a, um, a, a discrete AI model, all these different types of, of AI models that they might have out there. But, um, we haven't reached like what what you're talking about with this data centric view and kind of utilizing AI. I, I see that more as a very narrow approach AI, so very narrow focused on that skill set and not uh, what people think of as general AI, like which we haven't reached yet. There's, I mean, you hear about IBM Watson. Um, that's a long way from you know, the, the Terminator. I hope, but um, those are the. I, I, that's kind of what I see. Is that is that the case? Yeah, I, th I think that's a good summary of it. And, you know, if we look at, at solving problems quickly with technology or making things better with technology, if you, you consider that artificial intelligence, you, the, you can really do things with basic AI today. So if you thought of, hey, I found a problem, the next logical step, step might be, can I fix it automatically? Or can I build a little bot that can go fix it automatically? And we're starting to see that with things like robotic process automation for things that maybe aren't easily scriptable, but the, the citizen developer might be able to build that process into their their day-to-day -day job. That job might be IT operations or application development or running some infrastructure. And we're, we've done that in the past with some existing government clients maybe writing um, you know, something to analyze complex analysis. So when you think of site reliability engineering, you could write some really basic AI or machine learning scripts where you could analyze dependencies across functions that you need to monitor in your job that are unique that industry can't do themselves. Mm -hmm. You can take something like a TensorFlow or a PyTorch and do some analysis of basic data sets and do that and roll it your own to some extent. Right. right. Um, or unlock those things in, in a cloud if you have access to something like an Azure or an AWS where you can do some AI you know, things in the cloud, but you can easily get the data that's accessible and understandable and snap it into that fairly easily. And just touching on then uh, taking that to what we're talking about from your your um, blog, which I, I'll say I read. I did not read the, the subsequent uh, DOD uh, document, which was about 700 plus pages. So, uh, but uh, thank you for that breakdown. But um, 
you know, what I saw there um, and why I think AI, you know, in my mind, why AI clicked is that you're talking about, um, at first I was just thinking about data, you know, we're just talking about data, but we're talking about the full, you're talking about infrastructure, you're talking about the, the comms between all of these data points, how we uh, secure access, you know, everything needs to be CAC enabled and, and authenticated and all that good stuff. But also it, it came to mind, I've been reading a lot about and, and talking a lot lately about, um, uh, well, with the new, with the kind of the fall of Jedi and now, which sounds like a movie, but like the, the, the new, um, JCW, um, the, the new contract that is coming out for, um, as a replacement, the Jedi, a lot of that is going to drive, I think this new joint all domain command, uh, the, the JSC2, um, initiative where they're trying to kind of, it's all data centric in, in my mind. That's, uh, you know, tying a lot of data from the battle space and the tactical edge, with a lot of what I don't think we talked about yet, even a lot of most of this is going to be sensor data. So we started talking about IoT. We started talking about bringing all of this data in from could be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of data points to something has to parse all of that information to get the right relevant information to the battle, the commanders and the, the people who need that our allied forces or whoever subscribes to that data. Um, I, I think that's in my mind where, you know, AI also needs to be leveraged, especially when we're talking about DO, like what you wrote in your article, am I spot, am I close to, to accurate there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, there's a, so there's a program called Advana, which is the DOD program. And there's a, a bunch of approved tools for big data and AI that are included in that. And one of the, the biggest challenges is figuring out how do you do that at scale? And they're at the very early part of that journey where they figure out how do I, how am I going to do this? And they're doing it at the OSD level today, but how do I then do that at, at a, at a mid tier command, or how do I do it at the edge of the battle space? Or how do you do it in a jet as you're flying and you got to get telemetry off the jet at the end of the mission and analyze as part of the mission. And those are not small challenges when you think of the massive amount of data across Department of Defense and how do you make sense of that um, as a community, right? And so part of that is getting that data into uh, data, you know, data lakes or a data warehouse somewhere where people can access it and then do things with it that are valuable because that data has value to it. And often that's a time sensitive uh situation where you need to analyze it within minutes or, or days, not months or years. JC2, like I love the idea of it. Define JC2 for me, Willie, please. <laughs> okay. So so the joint all domain uh, um, kind of command and control um, initiative, or I, I, it's uh, JAD, JAD C2, uh, is this idea kind of um, born out of like the, you know, the comms, the communication signaling part of the military where they have all of this data and, and Sean is, is spot on. Um, this is, and I'm not a military person, not trying to, to, to pretend like I'm a military, but I, I do, you know, I, I can see kind of the vision here is that, uh, the wars of the future are not just going to be fought with, you know, bullets and, and, and putting steel on target, but it's also who's going to have control of the data and that space and who's going to be able to, to, um, find answers and execute on a mission faster. And so this is a, a new arms race. This is why AI is so important. This is why, you know, you see all of this talk about um, AI and, and how the uh, how the, the Department of Defense and the U.S. need to be um, really focused on our AI capabilities um, so we can, uh, we can bring to bear the 
the technology we're going to need to analyze all of this data from this from the data space to to Sean's um, point. This data could be coming from land, sea, under the sea, from you know you know literally soldiers on the ground who are wearing sensors. Uh, it could be coming from you know satellites, weather, all of this data that has to go in. Again, not being military, but I understand all of these pieces have to be aligned and understood to get a, a good um, view of the battle space, to, to understand where, you know, you need to have your troops, how you need to have them there, what do they need to be equipped with. All of these things need to be understood so the best decisions can be made. And whoever can make those decisions the fastest, to Sean's point, you know, there used to be a time we could make these, these decisions on days. Like, I, I'm sure back in World War II and, you know, you look at the planning of D-Day and things like that, things that were in the works for days and months, um, we might have hours or minutes to make a decision. And so humans just can't, it, it is just impossible to parse all that data and to make a good decision without so decision support services from something like an AI. Okay, so- but Does that make what, sense? Well, yes. And, and what you said in my brain, I translate it as, we're gonna have this central command and control for all DOD, maybe even some Fed Civ agencies. So here's why, why I say it kind of scares me. And coming back to you, Sean, how do we secure it and how do we trust it? If we've got, I mean, it's coming in from everywhere. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So generally speaking, um, if you look at the zero, the trust piece of it first, so let's break that down. There's the zero trust architecture, so NIST 800-207, and there's the DOD zero trust reference architecture, which came out about four, about three months ago. Um, and there's a number of pillars. There's seven pillars, but if you break them down to the most basic functions, um, it's about securing a device, making sure it's it's not compromised before you let in the environment. It's about securing the users and the applications. And when Typically, what we find is securing users and devices are the easier pieces. Securing the application, and when we say securing it, not just compliance, but actually knowing and measuring that it is secure in, in real time, finding the, the open source module or the function or method that is insecure that the developer can rapidly fix on their own is where AI can definitely help us find that because they can measure those things um, with APM technologies, with integrated security. We can trigger and tell the, the DevOps team or the no ops team, hey, you have an issue, go take care of it immediately. And if they've, if they're managing a small service or a function, they can go fix that in, in, uh, in a couple hours and it's fixed. And we're starting to see that in the platform one environment in DOD where they're patching containers every day in 24 hours. And so if you have a team patching the, let's say it's the Tomcat container for the web front end on uh, every 24 hours, but the rest of DOD subscribes to that container, um, that hardened container, they're getting that patch and leveraging that fix without having to do actual work themselves. But getting that team that runs that container that owns the security for that container DOD wide, where they can patch it as fast as possible and know the exact function or method they have to fix is important. More importantly, if a large percentage of DOD applications rely on a, on a core set of containers being shared in the community, you also have to make sure those containers operate and perform meticulously. 
So if I have a team that's supporting that, they have to make sure it runs well. They QA it properly. They pull their performance testing left into their dev cycles. So when they publish it every 24 hours, which are a lot of publishes a year, that it is running smooth and not having any problems. And then the question becomes, well, how do those teams then monitor those in production at scale if they're across hundreds of applications, for example, across DoD? So I heard a couple of things. First, for another show, my past life is uh, insider threat. So for you to say that it's harder to secure the app than the user, we can debate that later. Um, But so to be secured, did I hear what I heard was AI DevSecOps. So we're baking it in at this ground level. We're using AI to do it. And that means that it's coming like it's the integrity of the data, the integrity of the containers are built from birth. Did I, is, am I interpreting that right or no? I mean, I, I think that's a general way to, to approach it. It depends <laughs> on what you mean by birth, but yes, if you're, if you imagine having a birthing a new baby every 24 hours, sure. I mean, it, it, oh. it, it comes from the top down okay. because that team's going to, going to turn over their, their, their fragile, their, in this case, we're really treating them more like cattle. If you want to use a DevOps term, right. We're going to, we're going to, going to, not treat it like a pet, but to that team that manages that one container or those five containers that a lot of people use, that's a very important asset in their life that they have to care and feed for and and nurture. And those things uh, come in lots of different flavors. But if you're a developer, right, you have to own everything about that container, that function that you're going to share with the rest of DoD and the the community. And so how do we, how do we make sure it runs well and it's secure? And then the question might be is, would you, from a data accessibility standpoint, like to know how that container is working, not just in your application, but in other applications around DoD, you can Mm -hmm. make a lot more decisions and support it better. If you can then access data across the organization and, and, and pull and work together across say a 10 application team. Team, so you're supporting them in ways that they care about that affect the mission. So wait, once you plug your container into the mothership, then you can like send sensors out and see how it's integrating, assimilating to everybody else. Sure. Yeah. So we want to, if you want to get the sensors for a minute, right? If we talk talk applications specifically or containers, those are going to have you can either go with some type of open sensor for application performance management to get things like metrics, logs, and transactions out of it. And so you could use something like Open Telemetry or FluentD or Telegraph or StatsD. There's lots of options that are open source that are supportable across different application performance management platforms, or if you want to use the word observability platforms, those as well. And the question for the government might be is why wouldn't you embed that inherently, those those sensors, if you will, for, for a, a DevOps team or an SRE team, inherently as part of your build cycle. So they're there and then you can leverage them across lots of observability platforms. Then, then an organization can pick the one that's best for them that they like the best, or maybe they can pick the one with the, the most advanced AI functionality and it's by getting the data into it. Um, but sometimes getting the data into your platforms from lots of systems in DoD is one of the hardest problems because they're, they've got to go through an authority to operate process and to get that approved. It's great, but making changes to it after the ATO sometimes can be a little challenging. So if you build your sensors in as part of that process inherently, it becomes a lot easier to get the data out later in a more open fashion, potentially. 
That actually begs a question I had, Carolyn, if, if I might. Um, and, and this is a, a slight tangent, but I'm just curious. Um, you, you triggered a thought in my mind, Sean. Are you seeing uh, from you know your customers and and, and um, the clients you work with? Is speaking of baking in this into the product, so there's the, there are these new uh, concepts around like open telemetry and sure. building um, um, tele, uh, uh, this type of telemetry into the application, so it can be exposed at runtime. And and be pull, pulled in by any number of these tools that you're talking about. So you can get a complete, more full picture of the, um, of the landscape. Is that something you're seeing as well? Or we are seeing it in different agencies. I would say some of the civilian agencies have been more focused on it from things like distributed tracing and writing things into their application code. And while that's a, a noble effort, in my opinion, um, it leaves a lot of uh, the infrastructure not covered. And so it becomes hard to connect the dots from, say, your application code or the web front end, which normally the app guys have pretty well covered. But then if you look at cloud infrastructure or on-prem hardware infrastructure, it leaves it uncovered in most cases. And if you consider the network, um, another piece of that you want to pay attention to, um, you've got kind of two or three of those major areas covered with, say, distributed tracing, but not the other two. I, I'm... I'm particularly a fan of, I like, I like things like um, a single agent you can deploy into a Kubernetes pod that gives you full stack support. And it allows you again to draw that linkage. If you go back to the DOD data strategy, the linkage between those things and make them understandable, um, it makes it very easy. And so that's where things often case cases of proprietary agent is extremely valuable. In my opinion, a much better approach at an organization than say maybe some select open source technologies, but you have to start somewhere. Right. Um, and so there's trade-offs in, in each of those situations. Um, if you're a smaller command or smaller organization, I'd say, look at some proprietary options. I think they're much easier to deploy, easier to support and much more valuable data. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're a contract officer and you need to make sure that your your government contractor is going to abide by your some embed some sensor technology in there, it may make sense for you to make that a requirement possibly at a, at a government level with some open source technology that you don't have to pay for every time you use it. Um, again, there's trade-offs in those, those approaches. I'm not saying one's one's better than another. A lot of it's going to be in the the eye of the beholder, if you will. Um, but if you go back to the the DoD data strategy, making data understandable, um, linked, and trustworthy uh, are things you probably want to at least you know make decisions aligned with for your organization. Um, particularly for your mission. And it's going to be a little bit more unique for, say, a, a very strategic part of DOD at the OSD level versus, say, a, a command running a two or three applications downrange, for example, or building those for a, for a mission system. Makes sense. So to achieve those eight, I, I think there's eight guiding principles that the DOD talks about. If you could give like your top three pieces of advice for agencies of how to do that, um, is that too hard of a question? Ooh, eight <laughs> principles. How, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, well, honestly, this is like our last question. So I'm just like, what is your, I guess, top three pieces of advice that you would give agencies to achieve optimizing? Yeah, so let's see. My, my biggest thing would probably be make sure you have, have trusted advisors or you build the skills in-house with a, with a chief data officer that can guide you along the journey. So think of a, a Sherpa. <laughs> this is potentially going on a journey up a mountain and you need some people that have, have, uh, can guide you through that because there's, there's a lot of pitfalls along the way or tricky little crevices that you want to avoid or approach in easy? a meaningful manner. Is it easy for agencies to get Sherpas? Uh, some, I mean, it certainly can be achieved. It, it often... 
you know, getting it acquired is the hardest part. Starting the journey and finding the Sherpa, if you're a DOD person, might be difficult, right? How do you put them on contract? Or is it a government employee that exactly. I have to recruit? can be tricky. Um, you can also obviously um, go try different Sherpas out for, for free sometimes with uh, kind of those, those no-cost um, engagements or a quick uh, free consulting gig or a, a rapid assessment, if you will. So Swish does some of that uh, on a regular basis. But... I would say the main thing is understanding the different data types that are available and how to connect the data types to make decisions is, is pretty important. And if you look, think of that in, in terms of our audience that we have here at Dynatrace, they fall into three or four major categories in DoD. But I would say there's, there's the near and dear is typically the, the developer or the application owner. There's the infrastructure owner, or if you want to call it the site reliability engineer, the people that have to run all the stuff that the app runs on top of, or the services run on top of. Think of you know, physical servers, switches, routers, firewalls, things underneath. And then we have business owners, or you have your command staff. And they don't necessarily care about all the technical stuff, but what they do care about are things like, can people on a carrier go purchase deodorant in the store or buy their Pringles in the store. I mean, you can't imagine, and I'm a, I'm a Marine with 18 months at sea on Navy ships. You can't imagine how much heartache, uh, you know, a, a, an S6 officer gets when nobody, the, the 5,000 or 2,000 sailors on a ship can't go buy things at the store that they need right now. Are you kidding? Wait, simple, simple things like that. Oh, just because they're on the ship. They can't get to sure. a store. Well, imagine okay. you, you roll into your favorite grocery store, but, and you get a cart full of stuff you need, but you can't check out because the application's down. It's a big problem. It's a very real concrete problem on the ship. Imagine you need to go take a shower for your next shift and you can't get deodorant and soap and shampoo. Not Are a lot you, of fun. Like uh, you're okay. being literal you're, here. I'm being literal. Yeah. Applic simple applications that we take for granted in our day-to-day -day life as civilians, when you're deployed in the middle of the ocean or downrange in the desert, when they don't work, you can't order beans, band-aids, and bullets because your logistic application is down. You have to revert to a paper process and a, and a radio that you have to call back for to order your uh, your lunch or your dinner, or uh, you're out of provisions for a 10,000-person Ford operating base. Those are real problems that applications and DOD sometimes have problems with. They don't run perfectly. There's a lot of room for improvement for making those things run better. And AI can be a key component to find those problems proactively and form the appropriate teams that we've tagged for those components in the application or that container or that web front end or the load balancer so they can do their jobs and know there's a problem. I can't tell you how many times troubleshooting DoD apps in my last 20 years of doing it that we found really simple issues sitting there in a log file that nobody was paying attention to. And there was no instrumentation doing basic reporting up into a dashboard so people can see it. Now, if you add AI on top of that, where it would actually look at all those things, tee up the root cause, and then give you the answer on a silver platter as an operator, that operator can do magical things with that. Half the problem in DoD is getting the data in front of the right people. Um, so it's understandable and it's contextual to the problem. Um, so they can solve the problem very quickly. And when I talk about troubleshooting apps, I'm talking about I've, I've done pro bono work for two or three months troubleshooting applications, only to, to prove the issue was really what we thought it was. And often it's saying, is it the network or is it the application? And it's triaging that. And people AI just can't can get, get to us, the data. So AI can get us to that faster. Absolutely. The yeah, root yeah. cause analysis coming back to what you said before. So as usual, time has beat us. I can always like, I could do this all day, but um, I want to get to our tech talk questions. So um, these are just like some, we ask the same questions basically to all of our guests. Um, so are you ready, Sean? I, I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> Let's go for it. 
All right. What do you think the next big leap in technology will be? Oh, big leap, big leap. Let's see. You know, I, I would say I, I'm really excited about drones and kind of the applicability of AI in the in the drone environment. And and I think this is twofold. So if you take in the context of, of just general life, I'm very excited about the ability to get things delivered automatically, where it doesn't require a truck roll um, necessarily, but a very simple delivery by a drone somewhere within you know a, a metro area, if you will. Um, I think that'll make life a lot easier. It also helps us get things even faster than before. Um, in many cases, right, it also means burning less gasoline or fuel or emissions um, for the environment, which is, is good for the environment. Now, on the flip side of that, if you're DOD you get very, or the FAA, you get very concerned about that. So I think there's a lot of applicability of um, AI being used to police um, and track and potentially counter drone operations that are uh, less than above board, if you will. So I think those both are going to continue to to grow very rapidly and be quite innovative spaces in the near future. You know, the whole drone thing just made me think of just our um, our roads, that, that infrastructure, what it would do even on that front. So yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, podcasts, TV, books, movies, what inspires you when it comes to tech these days? Inspires me about tech. You know, I, so I'll, I'll drop a name here, but I, um, I really like the O'Reilly training subscription. So I use that a lot and I'm, I, I probably read less books back to back than I used to, but I do a lot of skimming and jumping around. So I'm a little ADD from that perspective. Now my CTO role, I'm very broad. So I have to touch lots of technologies. And then I find one I love and I go extremely deep, which O'Reilly lets me do with lots of books. I don't necessarily have to pay for every time. So at 50 bucks a month, really good offering. Um, second thing, if I love learning through teaching novels. And so my very first teaching novel was the goal. I probably read it. I don't know. 10 or 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. Um, but that's Eli Goldratt. And it's the kind of the granddaddy before say the Phoenix project or the unicorn uh. or velocity. But I'm a big fan of using those to teach um, other peers how to approach running a team or, or culture or running an organization. And I probably talk as much about culture in my discussions with large bureaucratic clients as I do about technology because you can have the best tools in the world, but if you can't execute them, can't get your team to work together, it's really hard to be successful. Amen. All right. Do you have a favorite app or gadget? Like what do you use the most? What do I use the most? I mean, my, my, my mobile phone for sure. I use the most. And my wife would love to throw it out the window at times. (laughs) So that's probably the thing we use the most. Let's see. Is there an app on the phone I use the most? Yeah. Um, Guilty pleasure app. You know, late, so this is not a business app, but I, lately I've been stuck on Top War, which is a, is, a, is a kind of a somewhat addictive multitasking gaming app. So kind of like World of Warcraft, but it's a little bit of a geek in me there coming out. But um, See, you know, I, I, I normally play for. a few minutes and then I, you know, I'll play for, for a few weeks, get bored of it, get to a high level and toss it and try something new. Guilty. Really? I love that. I love finding out your little dirty secrets that we can put out in public. Okay. Yeah. And you just um, got to turn those things off at night too, right? I need to, my brain works so hard during the day. I just want to veg out at night. So that's, okay. that's my veg out time. I to like pay for a lot of these. They're there. They got the micro payments. This is how they make money. I refuse <laughs> to do it. I, I think that's part of the challenge, Willie, is you go as far as you can until you're like, okay, I'm not going to wait three days for a, a, a weapon to get built. So I'm done. I just check out, but I, I like that challenge. <laughs> this is why we're friends. <laughs> All right. What's on your technology wish list? Wish list. 
Ooh, technology wish list for me. Uh, yeah, I wish I could find something that could uh, could could cart my teenage kids around. But um, <laughs> uh, we've we've now we're back now to I the drones. We're that, yeah, we drones could get again. drones. Drones that drive my teenagers around. Yeah, I actually love spending time with them. So let's see what what would be the other cool technology that that I wish I had. Um, uh, yeah, it's a tough question. I have a lot of really cool toys, but I don't, I'm pretty simple on the tech side at home, you know, a mobile phone. I'm a bit, as an old Marine, I'm a bit of a minimalist from that perspective, probably. But um, yeah, I don't have a, a big magical technology. I think I would love to have every day. I play with it so much during the day that, that I don't want to go home. I don't yearn to do more tech things, I guess, if you will. I do need a new, uh, a new, uh, home entertainment system down in our theater room. We blew that up in a thunderstorm last year and I haven't replaced it yet. So it's probably my next big tech investment, a new AV receiver. That's completely integrated with everything. Mine is about, it was probably about 10 years old. So it's pretty good. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for taking time, uh, to talk to us today. I had a great time with you and Willie. Thanks for co-hosting today. Thank you for having me. And thanks. Sorry. (laughs) I was going to say it's been a pleasure, Carolyn and Willie. Really appreciate you. Let me uh, come hang out with you for a little bit. Oh, anytime. We'll have you back. So thanks listeners. Um, Please be sure to smash that like button, share us and visit us on social media. And we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.